Buonasera! My name is Marcello. I am a tour leader with Explore. Ciao! Come, follow me. Behind this 200-year-old gate is the best view of one of Rome's finest fountains. Ah, oh, bellissima! Look at the Renaissance detail, the sunlight in the bronze! Not everyone knows about Turtle Fountain, but you will if you explore. Search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel. Explore. I feel good. Dad, are you singing to your cereal? Come on, Ava. Silk almond milk. Starts the morning on a high note. <laughs> Silk almond milk. With calcium, vitamins A, D, and E. Feel plenty good. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, indoor eating, drinking and socialising are back just in time for the new India variant to put future unlocking under threat. Will the government be led by data, dates or dithering? We'll be talking to Torsif Khan, author of The Muslim Problem, Why We're Wrong About Islam and Why It Matters. And could we pay the world's COVID bill with a one-off wealth tax of $1 trillion? $1 trillion. <laughs> we talk to an expert who thinks we should. All that and more on today's Bunker. Let's meet our panel. First up, we have the Atlantic staff writer, Yasmin Sahan. Hi, Yasmin. Hey, Torian. So events in Israel and the occupied territories have dominated headlines for days. And some of these issues are familiar with people who sort of followed the region for, for years. Rockets, airstrikes, uh, respective rights to, to self-defense. Um, and so some of these old arguments are happening again. But what do you think is dangerously new about the past couple of weeks? Yeah, the um, well, you know, I've as someone who has kind of watched this region pretty closely for a while and, and who remembers the last time we saw this level of violence quite clearly, which was back in 2014, I think the big change that really stands out to me is the violence that's taking place, not in the Gaza Strip, but within the Green Line, within Israel proper. There was a, a, a video that was kind of going around, but it was also broadcast on the news of a lynching of an Arab-Palestinian citizen of Israel by a far-right mob in Batyam, which is um, just south of Tel Aviv. Um, you know, there have been reports of Arab rioters um, torching a synagogue, burning cars, extremists threw a Molotov cocktail into a Palestinian home in Yaffa or Yafo, hurting children that live there. Um, so there's been an intense amount of violence in what commentators are referring to as mixed cities, which I think really says the quiet bit out loud that, you know, this is a country that, you know, in, me in many parts of it, despite the fact that, you know, 20% of the population um, are, are Palestinian citizens of Israel. And of course, you have the Druze and, and whatnot, that this is a, a country that is segregated in a lot of ways. And that has had a government that has stoked ethnic hatred, frankly, frankly um, in the country, uh, in, oftentimes to serve its own purposes. I mean, recall that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu once warned that the Arabs were voting in droves as a way to, to get his supporters to go to the polls. And and now it really feels like we're kind of seeing the results of this. I mean, this this feels new and this feels different. Yeah, I don't remember this happening in 2014. Mm -hmm. and, and quite understandably, I think a lot of attention is being paid to the situation in Gaza and, you know, the rocket fire coming from Hamas. You know, in Gaza, we've seen, I think, two 
200 Palestinians have died, about a quarter of them children. But I think it really is worth paying attention to what's going on within the Green Line, within Israel, because even, you know, if there's a ceasefire, if the rockets stop, that those tensions, that violence isn't going to go away very easily. And I think that is a bigger problem for Israel down the line, even if it's not something that people are talking about right now. I mean, and, and is there a problem with the with the Israeli police? Because obviously they're the people that should be preventing this violence within the country. I mean, we, we've certainly seen a lot of really intense, I mean, at least the, the things that I've seen online, you know, videos of Israeli police kind of, you know, kind of forcing themselves in, into Palestinian homes and being quite heavy handed with their approach. I don't think from what we've seen anyway, that the authorities are really interested in sort of keeping calm. Uh, many of my American Jewish friends have noticed it's become much more acceptable to criticise Israel. You know, the, the kind of discourse has changed. But the US government um, alone vetoed the UN's plan to call for a ceasefire, even under Joe Biden. Why is the, the sort of position of the White House on this um, so intractable over over decades? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a good and a big question. I mean, it vetoed it the the resolution not once but three times. Um, but you know, actually, I don't necessarily think it's the case that we're not seeing criticism from the U.S. You know, in fact, I think we're seeing an unprecedented willingness among some U.S. lawmakers to speak out against what's happening. Not not only you know vis a vis Israel and Gaza, but also you know with the displacement of Palestinian families in East Jerusalem, with the untenable status quo in the region more generally. These are predominantly lawmakers from the progressive flank of the Democratic Party. But I mean, you know, some of them are even going so far as to use the A word, apartheid, which has been used, you know, by, by some human rights groups to describe Israel's decades long occupation of, of the Palestinians in, in, the, in, in the West Bank and Gaza. Now, with regard to the White House, I mean, it's clear that the ground is changing and it's clear that they're going to come under a lot of pressure to, to sort of, you know, respond to, to I think, the, the movements within their party. But, you know, I think it's worth kind of understanding how the Biden administration is looking at this issue within a broader picture. One of my colleagues, a contributing writer for The Atlantic, Kim Gattas, had a great piece recently in which she basically talked about how, you know, the Biden administration has hopes of reviving an Iran deal. And a big part of that is sort of taking, you know, part of responding to this is sort of taking that into calculation. You know, she says that even the singular goal of reaching a nuclear deal with Iran can be undermined by violence in East Jerusalem and Hamas rockets flying into Israel. It can be undermined by Iran it can be undermined by Benjamin Netanyahu. So, you know, I think they, they're they not looking at this with a singular focus the way I, I think a lot of others are. Returning to the bunker, we have editor at larger.politics.co.uk, Ian Dunt. Hi, Ian. Hey, man. Police have made arrests after videos emerged on social media over the weekend, seeming to show racist threats against Jews in North London. Um, the videos were universally denounced, but are less obvious forms of anti-Semitism still... Uh, tolerated in the context of the conflict. Yeah, I think they are. It's a really weird, um, you know, the Israel-Palestine thing often sort of descends into this both sidesism, which sort of flips in, in really weird ways in terms of foreign policy and domestic policy. Because when you're looking at the, con- the sort of the conflict itself, both sidesism doesn't help you at all. I mean, one of them is an occupying power. Israel is an occupying power and the other is not. And therefore to say both sides, is a complete is just to ignore the reality of the power dynamic, to ignore the way in which Israel has conducted the occupation, put people in the open air prison, then start conducting military, you know, operations. You know, don't be don't try and call it collateral damage when you end up killing kids. You're going to kill kids by virtue of the policies that you yourself have imposed. So the both sides 
it, it was completely false there. But then in, in a mirror image of it in the UK, the both sidesism, which we sometimes use. So, I mean, you know, today we saw, you know, comments made, you know, calling people sort of pro-Palestinian protesters, um, primitives by uh, Michael Fabrican. And then at the same time, we see that van seeming to go through North London. And we sort of say, oh, both sides, but it raises both sides of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. But actually, that, I don't think that's true at all. I think that there's a much more pronounced form of anti-Semitism in the UK that flares up in these instances. That is not a general description of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. You know, there's other instances when you see a, a sort of Islamic terror attack somewhere, you will see exactly the same sort of thing be raised against Muslims, acting like each Muslim is responsible for any for the action of any other Muslim. But in these instances with Israel-Palestine, that is precisely what you see. You see a complete failure to distinguish between individual Jews and the behavior of the Israeli government. You see a vitriolic attack against many Jews on the basis of the behavior of the Israeli government. And I think that there is this weird sort of question that you have to ask yourself, right, of why the, the extent of the attention the extent of the passions inflamed. If you look at thousands of people marching through central London, it's, I get those marches. I, I would support the principle, you know, of free Palestine under which those marches operate. But I do have to ask myself, like, where the fuck are those marches for when Assad has been killing hundreds of thousands of people in Syria for the last 10 years? You know, where are they for the actions of the Chinese government against Muslims in its own territory? And so it's not even just the qualitative way that it expresses itself. There's something in the quantitative way, the, the, the extent of the interest, the extent of the passions aroused that makes me question exactly what it is that's going on in the minds of some of the people who follow it in that manner. Our special guest this week is Torsif Khan, a human rights activist, a solicitor specialising in immigration and asylum law and author of the new book, The Muslim Problem, Why We're Wrong About Islam and Why It Matters. Welcome to the bunker, Torsif. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, th yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, so as Ian mentioned, Michael Fabricant called some pro-Palestine demonstrators primitives, a tweet that he later deleted. Um, I have yet to see signs that, um, you know, that he is being um, investigated, disciplined in any way by the Tory party. Is this the kind of thing that, that, that sort of, I suppose, is an example of what you talk about, this just sort of constant sort of background hum of of Islamophobia that isn't taken that seriously. And perhaps I could also throw in sort of Lawrence Fox's latest tweets about grooming gangs. Is this just kind of, do you think this is just typical of, of a lot of the sort of political discourse? Absolutely. I mean, I saw the tweet yesterday that Michael Fabricant posted and, you know, as horrified as I am, I also have to roll my eyes because, you know, this is the kind of background of Islamophobia that I've been experiencing for decades. And it's the kind of Islamophobia that I've been, you know, researching and talking about in the book. So anytime I see something like this, I feel like the purpose of the book is vindicated in some ways, or the importance of the book is vindicated that we are treated as if anything that we do is, is seen as representative of of Muslims in their entirety. And I think that, for example, what happened with the, the gross anti-Semitism we saw on the streets in London is now, you know, taken by Fabrican as this example of a huge bunch of people being um, a certain way. And I think it really plays into age-old stereotypes about potentially Muslims being savage and, and barbaric. So... Yeah, so I, I can only roll my eyes at the continued rhetoric that doesn't change, knowing that nothing is going to happen to Michael, despite his tweet. 
So we're recording on the day of the grand reopening of pubs and restaurants, but a growing number of scientists say that it should have been postponed due to the Indian variant, and they're advising people to avoid drinking and dining inside anyway. Epidemiologist John Edmonds, a member of SAGE, thinks the variant is likely to become the dominant strain of the virus very soon, with evidence suggesting it is more transmissible than the Kent variant. Ian, simple question. Um, Was the government wrong to stick to its reopening timetable today? Probably. Sorry, you asked me a really simple question. I should be able to give a yes or a no, but it's actually not that easy. Like, <laughs> I should have done one of my incredibly long rambling run-ups. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. Well, it's given me a little bit more space for me to yeah. be able to explore a more, a more nuanced answer, let's call it that. I mean, the, the trouble is, like the last few, the last couple of weeks, the experts, I mean, I've spoken to or that have been coming out publicly are actually pretty split on this. I think we had a pit, you know, if you... If, to think of expert opinion on COVID, you had split, you know, as we talked about, I think on I Go What Now and with the guys from the investigations team last week, you have splits up until sort of mid-March last year. And then expert opinion was pretty much uniform. And I think that started again sort of at about mid-March this year, where expert opinion actually became quite split on foreign travel, on how quickly you open up. And that's been in a quite a pronounced way over the last couple of weeks. Um, and it essentially comes down to risk assessments of... Uh, the Indian variant. And that is based on decision-making in a state of uncertainty. I mean, that is the key thing. We we just don't know. So you fall back in a position that isn't really expert-led. It's essentially about public policy of saying, do you take this precautionary, vigilant approach and think, well, actually, we've probably imposed restraints that maybe we didn't have to in the end? Or do you, you know, or or do you actually just say, well, we're going to take the other way and think, well, at least we're not going to take the risk. And at the moment, it, it's hard to call. I'd say the weight of expert opinion right now is probably on the fact that they probably should have slowed this down. Christina Pagel uh, just tweeted very recently that vaccines appear to be um, pretty effective against the variant, but that it's all it's a numbers game. And that if they're only sort of, you know, 1% of vaccinated people, you know, get very ill, well, that really depends on on, on how it's sort of spread. So do you think it's sort of that we should be thinking in terms of that sort of overall risk related to numbers rather than like, you know, thinking, oh, well, vaccinated people are safe and the unvaccinated people aren't. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think it's really hard to get sort of get this into people's minds. I mean, at the moment, the government is pumping out this message of this comes down to the people who've chosen not to get vaccinated. You know, that's why there's a risk. And that is just and it's just not correct. There's very, very few people who are choosing not to be vaccinated as an overall percentage. There are a lot of people who aren't vaccinated because they're, they're, they're too young. Now, the people that that if there is, you know, we don't know this yet. We don't even know that it's more infectious yet. But some of the estimates suggest that it could be up sort of 40, 50 percent more more transmissible. Now, if it is that and you kept everything open, you know, when you look at the stuff that Sage puts out, it suggests that we would very, very quickly come up with an with an intolerable situation in terms of pressure on the health service that would that would probably require another lockdown. And the reason for that is, yes, you've got the young people who are less likely to go to hospital. But some of them do. And if that small percentage, if, if there's enough transmission, that number then becomes big enough to impact on hospitals. As well, if you've had the vaccine, you have to be very, very unlucky to end up in hospital, even to get sick, let alone to go to hospital. It's a tiny percentage. But if it transmits to enough people, that tiny percentage still ends up as a big number of people that will end up in hospital. So it is not, you know, we are halfway through the rollout. This has been part of the problem all the way through. There are examples of this happening already. We looked at what happened in Chile earlier in the year. That should have been a fucking wake-up call. And yet for some reason, bafflingly enough, it hasn't been. The government needed to take a decision. You could keep on with this rollout plan 
but you needed to keep the borders closed to prevent this kind of variant getting in. And that is something that they singularly failed to fucking do. And Johnson put India on the red list for travel 17 days after Pakistan and Bangladesh, um, allowing an estimated 20,000 travellers to enter the country from India. Are you persuaded by the theory that that Johnson has denied that this was because he was hoping to make a post-Brexit trade visit to India, which was in fact only cancelled just before uh, India was put on the red list? Well, it's extremely realistic, but then, you know, it sort of doesn't, in terms of moral culpability, it almost makes no fucking difference, right? Because, you know, if if he did it for that, for the Brexit deal, at least there would be a rational reason for it. I mean, it's failure of any real moral basis, but at least there'd be a reason. Otherwise, it is fucking inexplicable. Because, you know, even the decision on Pakistan and Bangladesh on April 9th came way, way after India announced it was concerned about the variant. That was on the 24th of March. And it was fucking days, as you said, it's 19th of April before they added um, India to it. Now, that is a staggering fucking error. And, and then compounded by the manner in which they did it. They announced that on the Monday, they, but they applied it at 4 a.m. on the Friday. So they then gave another few days, which people took that opportunity to just try and get in the country. And those days seem to have been absolutely pivotal in what took place. So in the end of it, you sort of hope, I kind of fucking hope, that it was for Brexit trade deals. Because if it wasn't, you know, at least that makes him cynical. You know, if not, then you are just so grossly incompetent, so unspeakably fucking inept that you can have no trust in them whatsoever. Which, of course, is the position that any rational person would be in as we stand, given the way that the government is operating. Yasmin, India's been struggling for weeks, you know, with 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 a really frightening death toll. So there's a humanitarian argument for getting as many vaccines as possible to India. Now there seems to be a, a sort of self-interested argument uh, as well. Do you think that the kind of, that the spread of the Indian variant will actually make sort of Western countries that could be doing more to help the sort of manufacturing uh, of vaccines and getting them in, in, into Indians, will, will that actually happen or speed up? One would hope, and, and that's certainly a question that I've um, that I've asked, um, and I've kind of been kind of delivered the same answers that we've we've heard already. That I mean, particularly with regard to Britain's position on this, you know, they have said, uh, of course, we will share our surplus doses, but we need to kind of see to the needs of the British public first. And you know, that's what we heard from the U.S. too. And I think you can understand why, as you said, there's a bit of a, you know, a self-interested factor. Your scoop. You're spooked when these new variants come around and you obviously want to make sure your your population is as covered as they can be. But but I think there's been a bit of movement on this. I mean, I think the the, the crisis in India was something of a wake up call in, in that, you know, a lot of countries kind of realize we cannot ignore these crises lest they become our own crises. We saw countries like Britain and the US and medical supplies and stuff like that. The United States has committed to donating um, a portion of its large surplus. Initially, it said it would give 60 million doses to countries that need the most. Just to just this week, it announced that it would um, donate a further 20 million doses. So while we don't know which countries those are going to go to, we would imagine that probably at least some of that um, would go to India. Um, I don't personally expect to see Britain parting with any of its doses any anytime soon. But, you know, some changes we could see are more countries supporting, basically waiving the, the patents on, on these vaccines is in a bid to boost manufacturing. But But I think in terms of like, you know, I think India proves that we need action right now. And the easiest, quickest way 
to make sure that India is more vaccinated is for wealthy countries with a lot of vaccine to donate some of the vaccine. I'm not holding my breath, though. Well, sometimes I think the defining clip of the pandemic in the UK is Matt Lucas doing the go to work, don't go to work. Now we have the government advising people not to take holidays in amber countries, but won't punish, punish anyone who does. Johnson is again saying people must take responsibility when enjoying new freedoms. Is this going to be blame shifting in case it goes wrong? It's just like, well, we gave you this freedom and you've abused it. I mean, yeah, it, it's hard to know what to think. Like, I think it's confusion inducing more than anything because, you know, the U.S., if I'm not mistaken, is is on the amber list. And um, I, as an American, am very keen on going home. Um, and I've, you know, refrained from doing so up until this point because, you know, I didn't want to be fined. But I also, you know, didn't want to put people at risk. I'm waiting to get fully vaccinated before, you know, I do anything else. But, yeah, I think there's it, it very much feels to me like it's this sense of we said we would reopen and we said that this would be the last lockdown. So, but we're just going to tell you, you can do this because we already said we would, but you must be very cautious. And if anything goes wrong, we told you so. And we will be citing your misbehavior if and when we have to impose some of these restrictions again. But, but I also think, you know, when I think about this too, like you, you have to feel for the travel industry. I mean, this is their peak time. I don't think they've been given very much support. I think they don't probably even know what's what's kind of going on here. I mean, this could also be an attempt at kind of throwing them a bone without actively encouraging people to, you know, go book their getaways to the south of France or whatever. So um, it, it's confusing more than anything, I think is what it is. Ian, do you think that we're going to be seeing... I mean, possibly the return of local lockdowns and the tier system, but, but certainly the sort of extension of the red, amber, green travel lists. Are we, are we going to, even if things sort of go well, are we looking at quite a long phase of limited restrictions and, and sort of rather flexible limited restrictions? Well, that's best case scenario. I mean, I don't see what the local lockdowns would offer you down the line. They offer something now. You know, now, well, and even now it may be too late. Certainly when it first arrived, you can have situations where, you know, the second that you spot a variant, you do a local lockdown, very, very short, you know, two weeks, just, just to cut the chain of transmission. That's the key thing. And you can control it that way. That would have been a really good thing for us to have been doing, frankly, you know, already, even in this, even in the period of sort of minor unlocking that we've had over the last few weeks. I think, or, and you could maybe arguably say there's some areas now where you could try, but I think kind of probably that boat has sort of sailed. I mean, on the travel list, it's just none of it makes the slightest bit of fucking sense. It just, I mean, quite apart from saying you can't go to an amber country, except that you can go to an amber country. You know, if we're saying to people, you know, you do a test, you go, you come back, you stay at home, we're not going to check on you. Now, for a start, these tests, we act like the test is a definite result. The truth is we get false um, negatives. And some of those false negatives, by the way, can be, I'm sort of averse to saying that, but they can be purposeful. You know, if you've spent a lot of money on a, on a holiday, you don't want a positive COVID test. Okay, so you will probably, be, there's an incentive on you to not do the test very thoroughly. It's not a blood test. It's not a urine test. You know, you're basically jabbing something in your throat. I've done it recently, by the way, and I am a fucking mess when I do this thing. I'm just vomiting everywhere. It absolutely ruins me. And I'm sticking it up my nose. just seems to trigger like two hours of sneezing for me. I can't. It's very important that no one ever sees me do one of those tests because I'm a fucking ruin. But nevertheless... You can fake that stuff pretty easily. You can, you don't, no one's checking on you for when you say you're going to isolate at home. No one's putting any restrictions on the people that are in the home. I mean, this thing is just leaky as fuck. We, we have somehow, it's incredible to me how this has happened. We've somehow gone back to 
exactly where we were after the first lockdown of government communication that is like frankly impenetrable you know just completely muddled of a strategy that is leaky as fuck with just gaping holes through it through which you can proceed it is and government actions which are belated it's it, what gets me is I forget when Boris Johnson announced the route out of lockdown, it was actually like a really good timetable. You know, it's five weeks on each. You could see the results of each step of leaving lockdown. You could make decisions on that. And honestly, I swear to God, naive young twat that I am, I actually for a moment thought maybe he's fucking turned over a new leaf. And maybe he's really thought, you know, he can, you know, now that the vaccines are there, he needs to not overpromise. He's going to be responsible about it. And yet here we fucking are right back where we were you know, the end of the first lockdown, making exactly the same fucking mistakes all over again. Yes, I want to ask you about the US briefly. There's a clear correlation between the political leanings of a state and its vaccine uptake, with Democrats far more enthusiastic, and I'm sure a similar pattern sort of within the state. Democrats are also far more likely to wear masks outdoors, even though there is a tiny risk of infection. So it's not necessarily sort of following the science. It seems to be sort of quite cultural. Do you think that this kind of polarisation, which which we just don't, we're not experiencing in Britain, was inevitable in the States, given, given you know, the way the country is? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's hard to think of anything that isn't part of the culture war in, in, the, in the US. And so I, I think it only stands to reason that masks and, and even vaccination would, would kind of fall into that. You know, one of my colleagues did, did a great piece kind of exploring why people, some people in the US don't want to get vaccinated. And, you know, the numbers are really just staggering. One in four Americans say they don't plan on getting a COVID vaccine. About half of Republicans under 50 say they won't be getting the vaccine. So, so there is certainly a partisan element to it. And I think you're even seeing it, as you mentioned, with masks, you know, on the Democratic side too. Um, you know, the, the CDC recently announced that people who've been fully vaccinated no longer have to wear masks. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've jokingly heard, you know, even friends tell me that, oh, it's great, you know, they don't have to wear masks. And they'll, they'll probably stop wearing them outside because, as you mentioned, risk of infection is low, but that they don't want to be mistaken for a Republican if they're walking into a store, um, oh, wow. you know, and, and I'm not wearing a mask. Because, yeah, I mean, it's kind of become, you know, part of the identity. So, you know, I'd hoped perhaps naively that this wouldn't be the case with vaccination simply because, this pandemic has been so huge and so damaging. And even indeed, you know, President Trump has claimed quite a lot of credit for, you know, Operation Warp Speed and the U.S.'s vaccine procurement of more mm-hmm. doses than it will ever need. You know, one would hope that we could kind of overcome the culture war for this. But as it turns out, everything is the culture war. So, yeah, the movie <laughs> Contagion didn't anticipate that. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I just want to ask you very quickly, each of you, do you think that the 21st of June final unlocking, go for it, you know, clubs, gigs, whatever, everything's up for grabs. Do you think it will happen on schedule on the 21st of June? I'm going to start and say no. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a note from Yasmin. Uh, Ian? It's, it's really unlike. At the moment, given what we're seeing about the variant, it, it seems increasingly unlikely. Uh, Tosif? No. I mean, the, the government said it would be pretty likely, which which should tell us all that it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> if we've learned anything from this past year. Our guest today is Torsif Khan, author of The Muslim Problem, Why We're Wrong About Islam and Why It Matters. And we're going to talk about it now. 
Tulsi, my impression was you seem to have written this book for two kinds of reader. There, um, there are things that would obviously resonate with Muslims, but it's also for non-Muslims. We'll get a lot out of it. Is that a difficult thing to pull off, having those, I suppose, those two audiences at once? Absolutely. And it was, funnily enough, one of the queries that a lot of editors had when I was shopping the book around, whether I would manage to do justice to both of those things. Um, so it was definitely a difficult thing to pull off. And I knew that it would be not only difficult on both sides, but it would also cause issues on both sides. But I always felt that it needed to be written in this way, because if you are Muslim um, living in the West, then you are dealing with both communities at the same time and the projections of those particular communities on you and how you formulate your identity. So that's been kind of like one of the defining narratives of my life. It's the mm. defining narrative of many Muslim people that I speak to. So it had to be written this way. And you say at the beginning that the book was partly a response to the Manchester Arena bombing in 2017. Mm. What did that make you want to to investigate and explain? I, um, not just, I suppose, your sort of personal emotional reaction, but 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 what what you thought that a book could do? I wanted to kind of just like shake the nation, shake people by the shoulders, and get them to really understand the kinds of difficulties that Muslim people face living in the UK and in other parts of the West, that we are constantly being pushed and pressurized by two communities simultaneously. We're constantly figuring out our identities in uh, nexus to those two forces, the, the force of Islamophobia on the one side and the religious dogma on the other side. I was hoping that by writing this book, I could have a conversation about those two things simultaneously. I felt this huge responsibility to try and do something after the attack because I felt so personally affected by it. And I saw that my friends also who live in Manchester were so personally affected and we were so afraid of the consequences that there would be for us living in Manchester as visibly Muslim people. Um, so I, I felt that I needed to do something. You know, I write in the book that, you know, I felt like a, a line in the sand had been drawn that we couldn't continue on this path anymore without actually having a conversation about what it means to be Muslim in the 21st century in a country like Britain. And so my book is an attempt to try and have that conversation. And in Britain, we're used to the idea that there is different traditions in Christianity from the liberal to the conservative. Do you think that Islam is defined in the media only according to its most extreme voices um, and that the, the, the sort of Muslims, like indeed um, all of the ones that, that I'm friends with, just sort of don't get much of a, an airing in, in the media? Mm. I think that we can only speak about Islam in binaries, right? So especially since the war on terror, we, we speak and understand of Muslims as uh, you're either an extremist or you're not. You know, you're either a conservative mm. or you're a liberal. You're either with us or you're against us. Uh, and I think that Islam and Muslim people and Muslim communities are way more complicated than that. Talking in binaries doesn't help anybody. I think that on the one hand, we have a perception in the media and a culture of storytelling um, about Muslims that focuses on extremism, that focuses on the worst aspects of, of Muslim communities or the worst examples of, of Muslim communities. And then when we see examples or we see people who don't fit that narrative, they are somehow reified as, as you know, as is now common parlance, like they are good immigrants, they're good Muslims, they are people who are with us, who accept our values, who mm. uh, live in Britain on our terms. 
Although, as you point out, with in the case of, sort of Nadia from Bake Off, it's just like, <laughs> even then, <laughs> however kind of, uh, you know, however you come across, you're going to have people um, attacking you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a false acceptance always because I believe that ultimately a Muslim person can never be seen to be fully integrated in Britain because we will always be seen as different in some way, perhaps in the most obvious ways with the fact that we most often don't have white bodies, we don't look like white people. So we were always going to be on the outside. And for me, Nadia is such a fantastic example of somebody who's doing and living in Britain kind of on the terms in which we think is like quintessentially British, you know, to bake cakes, to talk about like triumphing over your insecurities. What like what what is more British than than that? And yet when she tries to include herself in British traditions like talking about Christmas, she's constantly told that she doesn't belong. Mm. I think it's really interesting that, that you know that she gets a kind of Islamophobia that's really really geared towards telling her that she cannot be accepted within British society and that, that she's, uh, and the anger is there because, the, you know, there's an anger that is about how dare she even try to do that, which is really sad. And I was reminded again, of, I suppose, the, the, the differences in, um, within Christianity over interpretation of certain sort of biblical verses. And you challenge certain assumptions with close readings of, of the Quran. But are, are you sort of more... Hmm. I'm trying to avoid this binary here, but I suppose these sort of more progressive or, or optimist, uh, positive readings of these sort of verses, these contentious verses, any more or less authoritative than the conservative readings? Like, do you do you think that your sort of reading on it is is the real Islam, or do you think there's always going to be, as w- with any sacred text or even the U.S. Constitution, you know, that there's always going to be these these sort of different versions in contention? Mm. Well, I think in the time that we live in, given the history of Muslim communities, both in the West and abroad, it's kind of obvious that I'm going to be presented as a progressive. But I think that when you put my perspectives and my interpretations into a pantheon of 1400 years of history, I don't think that they are extraordinary. And I think that's really important to say, because a lot of the stuff that I'm drawing on is really old. A lot of the interpretations that I'm drawing on, a lot of the scholarship isn't from you know, isn't from this year or last year or even, you know, the 20th century. Some of this stuff is really, really old. We've been having these kinds of conversations for a very, very long time. It just so happens to be that we live in a time when either we don't know them or they don't exist, or we've had to deal with an erasure of that history. And there is a denial that exists within Muslim communities and in Western countries about what Islam can encompass. But at the same time, I would say that, you know, one of the most instructive things that I learned while I was writing the book was a conversation I had with a, a very progressive scholar called Amina Wadud, who is an African-American scholar, who a feminist scholar. And she, she said to me that, look, I construct Islam. I construct Islam in the way that I see fit. There, and we all do that, you know, and that's something that I take to heart in that for me, there is no Islam aside from the, the ones that we consciously individually choose to interpret. So we are all in the business of constructing Islam, no matter how often the imams or the Saudis or the fa- or our families tell us that there is a singular golden Islam that we can return to that is untouched. So when, you know, often the criticism that I might get is that I'm picking and choosing or that I am choosing a, a particularly uh, progressive interpretation of Islam. And I would say that I'm constructing 
and I'm constructing Islam in, according to the ethics and the values that I see in the religion. Maybe they are not different, or maybe they are not more valid than anybody else's. They're not more valid than the conservatives or, or people who who take different interpretations. But there is some there are some things that we can't agree to disagree over. We can't compromise on a person's fundamental rights and dignity. We can't compromise on the idea that Islam is concerned with social justice and the protection of minorities and vulnerable vulnerable people. We can't take away from and ignore the idea that Islam, when it was revealed, was incredibly progressive and it created rights where they didn't exist. So that spirit and all of that stuff that I'm doing is is not new. It's it's there. And just as I don't seek to invalidate other people's perspectives, it's really important for me to hold the the ground that I um, pitch my tent on and and say that this is valid and important and as old as as any other interpretation that since the very beginning we have been uh, you know an act of believing in Islam is an act of interpretation I would say hi Tosif hi very very belated Aid Mubarak you suggest um, in your book that the West actively needs Islamophobia for, for cultural and political reasons, mm. that, that it's a feature effectively, not a bug. C- can you explain that point a little bit? Yes. I think that, you know, when I was very young and I was internalizing a lot of the Islamophobia that I uh, was seeing around me because I was 14 years old when 9-11 happened. So the whole whirlwind of Islamophobia that that uh, event created was very much the the kind of the, the lens that I had when I was looking at myself and trying to understand myself. And I spent a really long time trying to understand where Islamophobia came from um, and trying to unpick it, even when I was in my late teens, early 20s. And it was when I started to do that that I understood that Islamophobia is not a contemporary phenomenon. It's something that is, you know, more than 800 years old. Uh, ever since Europe has had to encounter and try and understand and place Muslim communities and civilizations, it has sought to other us or treat us as foreign or to create stereotypes about us. And and those stereotypes that we are savage or barbaric or, you know, our values are different and so on, these are things that have progressed and evolved over the years. And so they might be framed in different ways. We might see them as neutral arguments or um, a rational response to the way that certain communities live in Britain. But I think that they draw from age-old archaic stereotypes that uh, are rooted in a particular history. And I think that today, when I think about Islamophobia, I think that the West needs for its survival to have an enemy. And it has it's had enemies in many ways. It's sought to other people in various ways, whether we had the Cold War or whether we had uh, internment of, of Japanese prisoners of war and, and people in America. And I think that we have, since the end of the Cold War, a turning of the gaze towards the Muslim world and Muslim people. And the Muslim now is a projection for all of the things that the West maybe even fears about itself and wants. So I think that there's this kind of idea there. The West is uh, that the Muslims are a scapegoat for a lot of Western anxieties. And I think that's manifest, you know, given that I'm a, an immigration lawyer, that's something that I, I see manifested all the time in our conversations around migration. Because when we talk about migration, often we're actually talking about brown bodies, black bodies, we're talking about Muslim bodies. And I think that we understand that racism and, and racial categories are created by the dominant class to exert power over others. Uh, but I also think that Islamophobia is a way of justifying the domination of Muslims or justifying the interventions into Muslim lives and 
communities and countries. So I think that um, one of the interesting things about the relationships that most Western countries have with Muslim communities is this attempt to demarcate what is and what isn't Islam. Um, what is the acceptable form of Islam and what isn't. And, and so, and I think that Muslims are also blamed for a lot of things that are happening. You know, the anxieties that Britain has around globalization or, you know, lack of investment in public services and so on. So I think that, yeah, the, the Muslim, Muslims are treated as, you know, the reason why I call it the problem, we're treated as a problem, the receptacle for all the anxieties that the West has about itself and what it's going through. You quoted um, Miriam Francois, the, the, or the writer Miriam Francois. Um, she says, it, it's very difficult to evolve in terms of your thinking as a community when you live in a constant state of embattlement. Do you think Islamophobia is the kind of main obstacle to internal reform? Uh, it's not the only Definitely. I don't think that we can we can get away as Muslims and Muslim communities by um, focusing only on Islamophobia. And that's also one of the interesting questions, because uh, Miriam and I had this conversation about can the two conversations take place at once? Can the conversation around dogma in, in Muslim communities and the work that we need to do within those communities and the conversation about Islamophobia happen at the same time? Uh, because that was that was a, an anxiety that I had about whether the book was going in the right direction, whether my frame for the book was right. And, you know, and I, and I, I understand that many Muslim commentators feel that we should focus on one, we should focus on Islamophobia, and that because of Islamophobia, the other one is impossible. I disagree. I think that we have to have those at the same time. And I think that critically, as Miriam and I both say in, in our conversation, was that those conversations are happening, but they're very, very difficult. They're made more difficult by by Islamophobia. I think that Muslim communities are very aware of the way that they are perceived by broader society. They're very aware of the way that they are spoken about, and they are very aware of, of their histories of domination and humiliation and of being framed as less than. And so when we try to have conversations around what does it mean to be Muslim, what can Islam be for young people living in the 21st century, not just in Britain, but, you know, all around the world, it, it becomes increasingly difficult to have those because Islam then becomes the source of our identity, our dignity, our sense of esteem and identity. And so there is a hardening around those conversations. There is a defensiveness and a reluctance to have those conversations because there's a fear that if we do have those conversations, either we embolden the Islamophobes or we somehow lose some part of ourselves. Do you think the breadth of the Muslim community is adequately represented by its spokespeople, the way things are right now in Britain? Absolutely not. I think the Muslim leaders, to, to speak frankly, are not always self-appointed. They're appointed by by who chooses to give them space. And when we choose as a broader media culture to give certain leaders space, we privilege certain understandings of Islam than, than others. And so this is something that actually came up with my, in my conversation with Miriam Francois as well, which was that when we have, I mean, it's really important for us to have female representation uh, in, in Muslim leadership and in Muslim uh, public spaces, and often because of non-Muslim media culture, the women that are chosen tend to be women who wear the hijab, reinforcing the idea that Muslim women only wear the hijab or only express themselves through that way. Mm -hmm. um, I would also say that I feel personally disappointed that a lot of the people who are in Muslim uh, positions of leadership tend to be on the fairly conservative 
end of things. And I think that we need to have a more diversity in terms of the range of views and the range of perspectives that people have on Islam. I think that that needs to be widened. But I would also say that that exists within the Muslim community as well. So even within Muslim spaces that, that non-Muslims don't access, there is often a reification, there is often a, a platforming of people who embody very, very traditional values and very traditional perspectives on Islam, which I think also represents, again, anxieties that I might not fully understand about what it means to be a real, authentic uh, proper Muslim. I think that lots of young people have anxieties about those. And because we're not able to talk about them, we end up uh, reinforcing uh, very traditionalist ideas of what is what is the good Muslim, what is the correct Muslim. And so I definitely think that we need we need more spaces, we need more conversations, we need a greater diversity of leadership, for sure. Um, finally, Tosif, in discussion of Islamophobia, there are, of course, people that would say it doesn't exist or they say, oh, well, how can you be you know, prejudiced against a religion and leaving out the kind of um, the, the racial aspects of it? How important do you think it is um, just to have uh, IHRA style definition um, of Islamophobia that, that can sort of be agreed upon and therefore applied, as, as, as happens with anti-Semitism, to, you know, to sort of two statements by public figures? I think it's really important because the strange thing about talking about Islamophobia in the public space is that we are actually not, we are not even having the conversations we need to have. We are still fighting for recognition that the way that Muslims are treated in, in Britain and in the rest of the West is a thing. Right. Um, and I think that the longer we continue fighting about the definition of Islamophobia, the longer we will continue to not have the conversation. So, of course, it's a distraction. And I think that there are many people who are invested in that distraction because they don't want any scrutiny or accountability to the things that they say or the beliefs that they hold. So I think that's really necessary. I think that the definition is important because there is a singularity, a singular lens through which Muslims um, are understood. And we are treated as, you know, being ethnically homogenous. We're not necessarily treated as being ethnically homogenous, but because we're racialized, we're treated as being a homogenous group with an identical background, with identical religious practices, an identical way of living. And none of that stuff is true. Muslims are really, really complex, even in Britain, uh, in a country where a lot of the Muslim community comes from, you know, established Commonwealth links. We're still an incredibly diverse Muslim community. And so I think it's really important for us to have have a, a conversation and to have an accepted definition so that we can move forward and start thinking about, okay, so how do we tackle Islamophobia as a real thing? How can we change the, the lives of Muslim people in Britain in a real tangible way? Now it's time for another one of our wild ideas for the future. COVID-19 has had unparalleled economic impacts with GDP estimated to have fallen by 11% over 2020, the largest drop in three centuries. The government budget deficit for 2020 to 21 is projected to be almost 400 billion pounds and over double the peak of the financial crisis. So what can we do? Professor Aaron Advani works at the University of Warwick's Cage Research Centre and is a commissioner at the Wealth Tax Commission. He thinks we can fund COVID through a one-off wealth tax. I'm Aaron Edvani. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Warwick, and I'm also one of the three commissioners at the Wealth Tax Commission. We had a major report that came out at the very end of last year, and we concluded the UK should have a one-off wealth tax if it's trying to raise taxes to pay for COVID. If the kind of cost of this is going to fall somewhere, where it's been kind of rubbish for everybody, 
the best place to put it is where the shoulders are the broadest. However good the recovery looks, however uh, kind of soon we can come out of all of this, it will still be the case that unemployment will be higher than it was before. There'll be a whole cohort of children who came out of school and came into a jobs market last year that had no jobs. That's not the context in which we would do the normal thing if you wanted to raise serious tax, which would be to go and raise income taxes. It's not going to be a great time to raise VAT and make the cost of buying stuff better. So if you're trying to find some way to get some money, that's not going to cause all this additional damage to the economy on top of that, that's not going to discourage work, that's not going to discourage spending, then a one-off wealth tax is going to be better than those alternatives. A one-off wealth tax is focusing on people who have wealth, and that focus typically will end up being on older households, because older households tend to have more wealth. What's happened in the last year is that younger people have found it much harder to get into work or to stay in work, while older households have either been more able to stay in work or where they're retired, they obviously haven't had that as a constraint. Meanwhile, they're the people who have been most in need of all the lockdowns that we've had because although certainly coronavirus has been very bad for some young people, it's typically uh, something that's most dangerous for older households. Something that has this kind of effect where it's essentially saying, well, older individuals are more likely to end up paying this because they're the individuals who've been most insured, most protected during the crisis. And because if income taxes will go up ultimately uh, to pay for the longer term leveling up and so on, those things are things that aren't going to be paid as much by older households later on. So this is a way of kind of balancing the burden across generations. So the biggest problem with a one-off wealth tax that people always come to us with, it's, it's, it's clearly the first thing in people's mind, is what do you do about an old granny living in a house that she has spent her whole life in, her kids grew up in, her husband has now died, and she doesn't have very high income, who doesn't have the cash flow to pay the one-off wealth tax. The only thing she really owns is what we describe as an illiquid asset, meaning it's an asset you have, this house, but it's not the sort of thing where you can just sell you know, one tiny slice of it the way you could if you had a portfolio of shares or if you had money in a bank account where you just take out the relevant bits. But certainly, there's nothing that says you have to pay it all up, up front. So we, we recommend it as the default position, having it paid off over, say, five years. In the context of the, of the grannies, you might still say, well, even over five years, that wouldn't be enough. HMRC, the tax authority, already has a system in which it allows people to pay where they can't afford to pay a tax bill at high speed to pay it over a longer period. They look at your circumstances, they understand what your income looks like and what you owe, and they make a plan with you. Pensions are also included in the wealth that people have. Clearly, pensions aren't something you can get your money out of up front. For that reason, we designed the tax so that the, the amount of tax you owe in respect to your pension wouldn't have to be paid up front. You automatically get a deferral on that until the point you either reach pension age or if you start taking your pension earlier, at the point you start taking your pension. So you wouldn't have to pay it until that point in time. And that means that you're not going to have to kind of find the money to kind of offset the tax you owe with respect to a pension that you can't touch right now. Lots of people have asked us, you know, do we think a wealth tax is actually likely to happen? The last serious piece of work on wealth taxes for the UK was done 50 years ago. And I mean, very much the reason the commission was set up was because, you know, we looked at the idea of a wealth tax that people were vaguely talking about and said, it's actually impossible, given the current set of information out there, to have any sensible judgment either for or against this. The world has changed since then. And the role of what we did at the commission was to try and answer those questions in the light of the more recent evidence that we've now provided, I think there's scope for people to kind of reevaluate this question. The fact that the Chancellor a year ago thought this was probably not such a good idea, I think it's reasonable to say, based on the evidence at the time, there wasn't really information to know whether it was a good idea. I hope that you know what we've done is to, to lay out a path by which someone could actually go and take this and, and turn this into reality. Ian, Aaron mentions uh, the, basic, the basic idea and also um, a couple of potential problems. How viable do you think this is? Yeah, I mean... It's viable. Look, I, I read. I, I read their report. Um, it's very good, you know. And they're not particularly coming up. I mean, they're saying you could do it one off, or you could have it continuous. But I, you know, if you want to go continuous, there's other ways of targeting wealth. Um, which I 
talking about things like capital gains tax and things like that, that, that we should probably reform the existing structures that we have rather than coming up with new ones. It's viable. There's always going to be um, problems with this kind of stuff. There always, always, always is. I mean, the first one is, you know, the asset rich, cash poor people. So, you know, you've got a mm. granny, uh, you know, she's sitting in a, two, a house that is worth two million, but doesn't have much money. And that's the family home. You know, it's been with them for centuries, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, she can't pay it. And so you have to come up with a structure for how you're going to um, either allow her off the hook or extend those payments or provide the funding. So there, can be, there has to be some kind of solution to that. It's not an insurmountable problem, but it is a problem. There's also, a, you're going to have a fucking nightmare on valuations. You know, I mean, firstly, you're going to have to value everyone's house. You know, like with council tax, we still use valuations from, I think, 1991, which in and of itself, by the way, is fucking uh, morally obscene. Um, but nevertheless, you do have to come up with that. And then even harder for private businesses. Would they do it? Are they the ones that are going to come up with a valuation? If so, that raises all sorts of problems. And then you have the real fundamental problem, which is when do you do it? Like, you know, th- this is a really good idea. It would have a lot of public support. It's the kind of thing Labour should support probably in a few, in a couple of years time when the pandemic has passed to do it now would be a very, very bad idea indeed, because the last thing, to be fair to them, you wouldn't be able to do it now because you'd need to set up a whole infrastructure for it. But we're not in the business right now of removing demand from the economy. We should be in the business of stimulating and encouraging demand in the economy. But it's still over, you know, there's going to be loads of problems. I mean, something this big, and it would be a huge, huge endeavor. There are always going to be problems. There's always going to be people that get like the really hard end of the stick on it. Doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue it. And it's a pretty good idea on its own terms. Um, yes, I mean, the IMF and the city of New York have both suggested that wealth taxes could be used to fund COVID recovery. Do you think that we will see this happening in some places, at least, if if not in the UK? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, we potentially could. I mean, I don't, I, to Ian's point, I, I don't think we'll see it anytime soon, just because it, you know, it, coming off this massive crisis. I can't imagine that any place would kind of, you know, be, be running to sort of take money from people at a time where they probably just want people spending money and bringing the economy back. I mean, the, the New York example is an interesting one because there's been reports that, you know, some of the richest um, New Yorkers have effectively decided to escape to Florida where taxes are, are lower, where they don't tax personal income. So one has to wonder, you know, even if they did put this in place, if if you know, particularly in states like in the US, if if you would see an exodus of kind of the wealthiest residents and what sort of impact that would have on the state's ability to to kind of get income more generally. But but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of like countries like maybe Switzerland that already have very high um taxes. Maybe that's um if if I'm remembering correctly. So yeah, I guess it's it's possible, but I I, I certainly maybe not in the US. I mean I know at least from from a US context, there have been calls, particularly among progressives, for like a, an ultra wealthy tax. Um so like taxing, you know, billionaires, I think what three percent you've seen this from Senator Warren and, and Senator Sanders. Perhaps you'd see something like that. Well, Aaron thinks there's a conservative case for a wealth tax, as it would encourage economic efficiency and equity. But um, but I, I, I did wonder how many conservatives um, he knew and how keen they were on paying more to ensure economic efficiency and equity. It's, it seemed a little optimistic. We've come to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for our panel's escape routes and politics. What are the TV, films, music, books, knitwear... Uh, that are taking their minds away from the world of politics. Torsi, if you're our guest, what's your distraction? 
I'm reading The Lonely City by Olivia Lang, which is an exploration of mm. loneliness as expressed by Edward Hopper and uh, Andy Warhol, David Wojnarowicz, and that's really fantastic. I'm loving that. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. Yasmin? I am basically, what with everything going on in Israel and Palestine at the moment, um, I found myself um, rereading a novel that I really like that's from an author in the region called Sadness is a White Bird. It's a beautiful novel. I highly, highly recommend it. It's by an author called uh, Moriel Rothman Zecker. Um, but but if you, one wants to kind of learn a bit more about Israel and Palestine mm. without, you know, going on Twitter or, or reading up on the history and delving into, you know, just kind of all the complexities, he maneuvers through and takes the reader kind of through, I think, a pretty good understanding of the intricacies and the histories of both people in a really touching, uh, beautiful way. So uh, I'll be rereading Sadness as a White Bird. Novels are always better than Twitter. Ian, what are you doing when you're not on Twitter? Uh, You know, I've been getting quite a lot from this year's Oscar film. So especially two two in particular, really. So one was The Father, Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor for that. Um, And the other was Sound of Metal. Um, Mm which deserved a lot more awards and actually more acclaim than it's got. And in fact, it picked up some awards for sound. It really deserved, to be honest, to flip it around, I kind of thought The Father deserved to get Best Director and and many other accolades. And Riz Ahmed really deserved the award for for Best Actor. The thing that struck me about the two of them was they're both, there's this Roger Ebert quote, right? Like, you know, cinema is a machine for creating empathy. Um, And they both did a really fucking good job of, making me recognize what it would be like to experience a thing. In the case of Sound of Metal, it's deafness. And in the case of The Father, it's dementia. And I have never, ever had any contemplation or understanding of what these things would be like in the way that I did after watching those films. Like, I feel, And that makes them sound both quite grueling and bleak. And they're not. Neither of They can be quite harrowing at certain points, but ultimately they're not that. Especially not Sound of Metal, which, which was a, a, a real instruction for me in what I now understand to be deaf culture, which is, in, you know, not considered a handicap or disability in any way, but is in fact like an entire different way of life with its own kind of rich emotional. I, I was really, really fucking moved and like a bit changed and sort of improved as a human, you know, in my capacity for empathy and understanding by virtue of these two films. And the fact that they both came out in the same year, I find quite extraordinary. I didn't think it was possible to improve you as a human ear. And I thought... <laughs> I can assure you, the finished item. It's it's easy to improve my capacity for empathy. (laughs) (laughs) So, one thing I really recommend, uh, if you uh, if you like music, is doing a kind of chronological journey through a back catalogue. I've done it a few times in the past, and it's always really satisfying because you get a sense of of how they evolve. And if, particularly if it's an artist that you know well, and I think maybe it's partly a, an age thing or, or a lot. I find myself like rewatching movies, rereading books, re-listening to, to records um, because you get that sort of, you get that depth. It's all that stuff that you miss first time round and you go back and you think that something's very familiar. And then you find all these new things. And I did it with, so I did it with all the Petrol Boys albums who were the first band that I ever, you know, really fell in love with. And I suppose I'd felt like, Oh, I know this. I've heard all of these these songs so many times, you know, and sort of, um, I don't really need to try them again. I just picked up the first album and was so, had so many new ideas about it and was so excited by it. I went through all the CDs and they've got these amazing 
reissues where you have a second disc of all the kind of, of like b-sides and remixes and demos and stuff like that with these unbelievably entertaining sleeve notes um where it's just an interview with Milton and chris lowe where they're just constantly making each other laugh uh, in a very sort of dry way and i just found like my wife was like are you going to listen to any other band ever again because <laughs> i basically listened to nothing but the Pet Shop boys for a month but it was almost this immersion and it was almost like, you know, when you're writing a book or something and you just, and you, and you're really sort of immersed in something or when you're, you know, studying at university and you get that real kind of thrill of, a, a you know, this sort of real, you have sort of breadth and depth and a whole new understanding of something that you thought you knew well. So I would recommend going to your, to your favorite artist, provided, you know, that they made more than one album and just going through it, because particularly when it's chronological, you just get such a sense of evolution and you get this sort of thrill of like, oh, they've discovered that sound. or Oh, he's discovered this way of singing. So that's my I know we haven't got much more lockdown to do, but you can do it outside of lockdown as well. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to Ian Dunt. Thank you. Yasmin Sahan. Thanks for having me. And our special guest, Torsif Khan. Thank you so much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. Remember, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcasts, and you can get the podcast early, get our splendid merchandise, and access to our live Zooms. News is coming next week, so sign up now and you'll be the first to know. And backers get a salute on the show. And here are some now. and best wishes from me to Nigel Stevens, Al John and Jerry and William Brown. Best wishes from me to Owen Murphy-Jones, John Wilson and Beth Jones. And finally, thanks from me to Caroline Clayson, Alastair Findlay and John Sills. Take care. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky with Yasmin Saran and Ian Dunt. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.